Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 11. As we're continuing this journey through the book of Revelation as we finish up our study through the Bible. You know, we've been tracing through the events that are going to happen during the time of the tribulation period. And so we came to the seven seals, and each seal, when it was opened, something bad happened, judgment and different things would happen. And then the seventh seal unveiled seven trumpets, and each trumpet sounding another ecological disaster, another uh, catastrophe uh, of large proportions. And so we've been seeing these things unfold. All of it together, the seventh trumpet will be constituted of seven bowl judgments, very quick judgments that are going to take place before Jesus comes back. But we saw the sixth trumpet back in chapter 9, and then beginning with chapter 10, we kind of see an interlude before he picks up and wraps all this up. And one of the things that we're going to see in chapters 11, 12, 13 are an introduction of various characters who are involved in what's happening during the time of tribulation. So this isn't completely sequential at this point. For instance, here in chapter 11, he talks about two witnesses who were involved witnessing on the earth all the time that most of the second half of the tribulation happens. And so, you know, Daniel had prophesied about this seven-year tribulation period, and he he said the first half of it, there's a, a world leader who would make a pact with Israel, sign a seven-year peace treaty, and then halfway through it, he would break that peace treaty, go in and defile the temple, and then turn on the Jews for the second half, the second three and a half years of the tribulation. Well, during this time, some of the characters he's going to talk about in chapter 11, the two witnesses, the woman, the child, and the dragon in chapter 12, chapter 13, the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, as well as the false prophet, the beast from the earth. And in chapter 14, we touch again on the 144,000 um, and all the preparation for what's ultimately going to be the last woe, the third woe, the last judgment. So here in chapter 11, he says, it's kind of like him saying, oh, by the way, this was happening all during this time of trouble. These guys were involved. And so we'll just begin reading with verse 1, and he says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, kind of like a yardstick. And the angel stood and said, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months, or three and a half years." So, you know, what's going on here? He's showing that it's about time to finish it all. And so he has John go in and measure everything. You know how if you're going to move to a different house or a different apartment, one of the first things that you do is go measure and sketch up a rough floor plan so you can decide where to put the furniture and things like that. It kind of makes a statement that I am taking possession of this Therefore, I'm measuring it to see exactly what I have. And it's what they would do when there was a real estate transaction. One of the first things of necessity that they had to do was go in and measure that which they were about to take 
possession of. It's kind of like if you're in your office and some guy you don't know comes walking in and starts measuring. You know what's happening. You're not going to be in that office for very long. And so that's kind of what's happening here. Now, it's interesting that he says, he, he tells them to measure the temple and the outside of it, but he said, don't measure, um, leave out the court which is outside the temple and don't measure it for it's been given to the Gentiles. So a part of the temple area has been given over to the Gentiles. Now it's interesting because with the prophecies that the Bible gives concerning the rebuilding of the temple in the last days, we look at that today and go, how in the world could you ever rebuild a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount, on its original site? Because if you've been there, you've seen pictures of it, Right smack dab in the middle of what's called the Temple Mount, which is really just a little hill, is the thing called the Dome of the Rock, it's the, or the Mosque of Omar, some people call it. But it's that gold dome that you see in every picture of Israel over on the east side, just inside the wall in the Temple Mount. And the Muslims declare that a holy site, and that's where traditionally the temple was. And there's a rock inside there, and that's why they call it the Dome of the Rock, and it was supposedly on that rock where they say Muhammad stood on that rock and ascended up into heaven and left his footprints in the rock. So it's a very precious site to, uh, to uh, Muslims. And then right across the courtyard from there is a mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is also on the Temple Mount. So this has always created a problem the Jews, there are many of them, there's a group of people in Jerusalem who are now studying to reinstitute temple worship. And you go, how are they going to do that? And so we've always thought somebody's going to have to remove the Dome of the Rock. However, if you think about it, if the Antichrist was going to come in and make peace in the Middle East, he would need to solve this problem of Jerusalem. And whose is it? And whose holy site is it? Today, that's such a controversial place that most days they won't even allow you up there if you're, if you're not a Muslim because they have various riots and problems up there. And so very volatile place, the most volatile place probably in all of Israel, all of Jerusalem, certainly. But suppose the Antichrist comes in and he has a suggestion. And this might be spurred by some of the recent research that suggests that perhaps the original site of the temple was not right where the Dome of the Rock was, but it's actually just a little north of there, still on the mount, in an area that today is mostly a vacant lot. There are a couple little wells and stuff there, but mostly it's just a vacant piece of dirt up on the Temple Mount. And so it's been suggested that perhaps the Antichrist will come in with this great idea, let's build a big wall on the side of the Dome of the Rock, and then all this space up north that you're not using, let's let the Jews have a temple there. We'll segregate the mountain, we'll have entrances on both sides, you guys won't get into each other's area, and it might be a way to provide the answer to a problem that's been brewing there for hundreds of years. How can the Jews celebrate, celebrate their holy site while the Muslims are also celebrating the site that's special to them? And so it could be that actually the temple was originally a little bit north. There are some interesting excavations that have suggested that. But let's suppose that it isn't, 
Still, there's nothing about the temple that it has to be on the exact same footprint. They were just told, Solomon was just told, go build a temple on the, on the temple mount. So for the Jews, anything close is holy. Um, that's why what, what we call the Wailing Wall, or the, what they call the Western Wall, is such a special place for them. They go there and they pray on the wall, they put their little prayer requests in it, they have bar mitzvahs there and other celebrations, because that's the closest that they can get to the Temple Mount and still have it be their territory. Now, when you go from there into the tunnel that goes down underneath the Temple Mount, there's a particular spot where they believe this is the closest that you can get to the Holy of Holies of the temple. And when you go down in there, you see there, there are um, always women in there who have candles burning and they're, and they're worshiping Jehovah in this spot because it's as close as they can get. So imagine if they're given a location on top of the temple mount where they can freely worship Jehovah, where they can also build a temple of some sort hey, it might solve a lot of problems. So perhaps the fact that it said, don't measure the outside part, Ezekiel, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 40, 41, 42, goes through an in-depth measuring of the temple area. And there's a reference there to not measuring the profane part. And so perhaps they're seeing that as being, hey, the Gentiles are trampling that, especially during this, worst part of the tribulation period, after the uh, abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist comes in and defiles the temple, now they're just, you know, it's been soiled and damaged. And so could be that what this is a reference to is the whole temple mount isn't special anymore. Part of it's been defiled and it sits outside this other wall. Therefore, don't measure it. It really doesn't count. But for whatever reason, he's told to measure it, and the implication certainly is the idea that God's about to move in. He is about to finish that which he has started. But in verse 3, he says, I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So there are these two guys who will, will preach and prophesy for 1260 days, which is three and a half years by their calendar. If you do the math, 365, it doesn't work out, but their calendar had 360 days to a year. And so if you divide this by 360, you come up with the three and a half years. And so they're prophesying and it says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now this goes back to Zechariah chapter four, where it was prophesied that these, there would be these two lamps that would shine light and they would have olive trees that were feeding them with oil so that they could perpetually operate. And so he's basically saying these two witnesses are like that. They are there to shine the light. Jesus used the imagery and the rest of the New Testament does as well of sharing the good news as being showing the light. Jesus said, let your light shine before men don't put your light under a bushel, and so on. So these guys are a light of the good news of Jesus Christ who are there in Jerusalem. And, and he says that uh, uh, if anyone wants to harm them, verse 5, and I, as a pastor, I really would 
sometimes love to have this power. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. It's a dirty job, but somebody has to do it, mess with the preacher, get toasted on the spot. I don't, I've sometimes wondered why God doesn't give us that power, but I mean, as I've thought about it, the people that I would toast are probably all the wrong people. I, I think mostly if, if pastors could burn people, they'd be burning other pastors. So it's just kind of the way it works. So he finally turned that one down a notch. But it, and at this point, they have that kind of power. And it says also, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. So for three and a half years, they can make it not rain. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So the question is, who are these guys? Um, anytime the Bible doesn't tell you who someone is, everybody wants to know who they are. Apparently, it's not important enough for him to tell us who they are. At least the point of it is not who they are. But still, you got to speculate and wonder about it. And so this morning, I'll tell you who they are. I know who they are, but <laughs> most people don't know it. Well, at least I have, a pretty good, I have a pretty good idea. First of all, almost everyone agrees that one of them is the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament. Because in Malachi, it pro it's prophesied that Elijah would come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So in this time of judgment, that Elijah would be there to introduce it all and, and would be involved. So, in fact, so much so that when Jesus came, people were looking at John the Baptist and saying, are you Elijah? Because they knew Malachi said Elijah would come, and now they're like, maybe it's you, because if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's going to set up his kingdom, you must be Elijah. John the Baptist said, no, I'm not Elijah. Jesus made it a little weird by saying at one point when they were asking about John the Baptist, he said, if people had received it, he would have been Elijah. So it seems to say that had people responded instead of rejecting Jesus, that then John the Baptist would have fulfilled the prophecy in Malachi about Elijah. And so, uh, but then again, he, he, de he denied being Elijah, and later Jesus said, and still Elijah's going to come before the day of judgment. So after John the Baptist was already dead, Jesus was prophesying that Elijah still would yet come in fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi. So he would seem to be the first candidate. And, and also remember, Elijah never died. He was raptured. He was taken up in a fiery chariot. And so He's the obvious choice for one, although some people even deny that. J. Vernon McGee thinks it's John the Baptist is one of them, and I think, I think Vernon, maybe he came up with that in his later years, or um, he just wanted to be different, but that's an interesting theory as well. Um, but the other guy, people say, one of the guys that people suggested is, is Enoch, because Enoch was an Old Testament prophet who didn't die. He was just taken up into heaven. He walked with God, and he wasn't there, for he was taken. And so they go, that makes sense. Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But that's not the best, um, 
you know, that's not the best argument for it because that verse in Hebrews is stating a general principle. There were exceptions. Some people have died twice, um, you know, have come back to life like, like uh, Lazarus and others, and they ended up no doubt dying twice. Um, but we don't have any indication really that Enoch fits in with this last days scenario. So I'm a bit skeptical about the Enoch suggestion. For my, for, as far as I am, I, I'm like 99% sure that Elijah's one, and I'm about 97% sure that Moses is the other one. For several reasons. Now people go, oh, but Moses died. Well, that's not a deal killer. And also, there were weird things about Moses dying. In Jude, it talks about Satan battling over the bones of Moses. So he knew somehow there was some something that was going to happen that Satan was trying to stop about Moses. Also, when it says that Moses died, it was in a book that Moses wrote, which makes you wonder. <laughs> somebody didn't just find the book and go, and then Moses died. So no telling, really. It just went off and... and uh, you know, he wasn't able to go into the promised land. But it, when you look at it, it makes sense to have you know, the greatest lawgiver and the greatest prophet as being these two witnesses. And when you see what they did, you know, the idea of making it not rain for three and a half years, that's exactly what Elijah did in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. Precise timing is even there. And then you look at what else they did. They could turn water to blood. Moses did that in Egypt. Not only that, they could strike the earth with all plagues. And again, that sounds like Moses. So Moses and Elijah, I think, fit the picture perfectly. And then finally, the, the thing that settles it for me is, remember, in all the Gospels, it tells the story of Jesus saying, there are people who are standing here that won't taste death until they see my kingdom. And then, immediately after that, he takes some of his disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and who shows up? Jesus is in his glorified body, and Moses and Elijah show up. For, for Moses, it was his first Israel tour at that point. He wasn't allowed to go into the Promised Land during his life, but here he's allowed. But there they are, the two of them together, talking to Jesus about what was going to happen. And so it was like Jesus was going... I'm glad you could be here, guys. It's not going to be long, but what, you're going to be back here doing this, declaring the gospel in this thing. I'm about to go die for people's sins. You guys both prophesied that that was going to happen. Here I am. It's on. We're moving forward. And so the, the whole idea there of, of them seeing Jesus in his glorified body and seeing the two witnesses that are central to what happens during the tribulation period, to me, that seals the deal. I think these guys are Moses and Elijah come back to life. It's possible that they are just two guys who are in the spirit and power of Elijah, that God has given a similar, um, you know, a similar calling to. And so, again, you don't want to make too big a deal out of it because it doesn't say. But anyway, here's these two guys, and they are testifying for three and a half years. Now, we know that from when the abomination of desolation happens at the middle of the tribulation to where Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation, that's three and a half years' time. But here, we're going to see that when these guys are done, 
then the seventh trumpet sounds and those last judgments take place. So clearly their ministry ends just before the seven bowl judgments or the seventh trumpet judgment. So they must start ministering sometime before the, the middle of the tribulation and then go for three and a half years, extending toward the end. The seventh trumpet is shown here later in the chapter just to orient us in terms of time. And then again, he goes back and deals with some characters that are involved at the same time. But notice verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, that's Satan, will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now you go, wait a minute. Why didn't they just blow flames at him? You know, why could they be now killed, whereas nobody could kill them before? Well, the key is that first part of verse 7, when they finish their testimony. When they were finished witnessing to everything that they were supposed to witness to, then they were allowed to be killed. Then in verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Jesus, we know, was crucified in Jerusalem. And so by referring to this city without even mentioning its name, um, because it had deteriorated so much by this time, it's known as spiritual Sodom, a place of gross immorality. It's known as spiritual Egypt, a place where idolatry is central. And it's known as the place where they killed Jesus. And so their bodies just lay in the street. Nobody would let them pick up the bodies. Verse 9, Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations all over the world will see their dead bodies for three and a half days on TV and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. They were so happy these guys died, they go, don't bury them yet. It's fun watching them rot. And so... And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. And they create a new holiday. They send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. People are so glad to see them go because these prophets, they thought, were making their lives miserable. Now, a couple reasons for that. First of all, while these guys were prophesying, we've already seen those seal judgments and trumpet judgments that were taking place. Horrible things were happening, and some of them were announced by these guys. So they're being blamed. All they do is give the news, tell what's going to happen, but they're going, you're the reason everything's so messed up. And so people hated them because they were bringing bad news. But also people always hate people who tell them they need to change. Somebody who comes and says, you're not doing this right, you need to do it a different way, most of us have a hard time with that. We don't want to admit we're wrong. And so when their life was falling apart, and these prophets are going, it's your own fault, you're being an idiot, then that bugged them, and they were so glad when they shut up. Kind of like, you know, there are certain TV shows that you don't want to watch, but every once in a while you get a glimpse of it, and you're so glad when they cancel it. It's like, finally? Or somebody on a show gets off the show and you go, finally, no Simon. You know, and, and, but it's, this is the way it was. It was like, woohoo, we're free of those guys and everything that they were doing. 
And then it says, though, it gets weirder. Verse 11, now after the three and a half days of them being dead, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw it. Everybody was watching their bodies. All of a sudden, they jump up, and they're like, fine. And then a big voice tells them to come up, and they float up in the air. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. So there were roughly 70,000 people in Jerusalem at the time. 7,000 of them were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The people who didn't get nailed by the earthquake, when they saw these guys walking and then flying, they were like, uh, God, this, you might be worth a second look. Um, we don't know if they all repented and turned to Jesus, but at very least, they were scared enough to give him credit, to not just mess with him any longer. And so, you know, all of this happens, and wow, it's a weird event. And then it says, verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The three woes that we saw earlier are the the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgment. So now we're just about done. We've come to an end. But what do we say about these witnesses? Why is so much time devoted to them? And what do we learn from them? Well, first of all, the fact that God sent witnesses in a time like this tells us a lot about his heart. As I've told you many times before, the time of tribulation is not just a time of getting even. That will happen for eternity to people who reject Jesus Christ. But the time of tribulation was for the purpose of squeezing every last convert that could possibly turn to Jesus. So even in the middle of these horrible events, God's heart is still, I want to save more. I want to reach more. And so he has 144,000 people who are supernaturally protected so that they can declare the truth. And they are functioning during this time. There are other people who will end up being killed for their faith who get saved and continue to share this word. And then there's these two powerful like Bill and Ted come from the past, you know, old, old prophets and who are like, now they're doing it for three and a half years with all kinds of power and everything else, and they die and then they raise from the dead, which you can't help but miss the fact that you know, their ministry, three and a half years, about what Jesus's was, they killed Jesus too and celebrated when he was dead, but he came back and floated up in the clouds up into heaven. I mean, it's kind of like people were going, if I had been there and if I had seen Jesus personally rise from the dead, and float up, then I would have believed, but I'd have to see it with my own eyes. So God goes, okay, I'll do it again. Want to see it again? I'll do it with these guys. And still, people didn't believe. They actually celebrated. But it's so important to God that he have witnesses. And I'll tell you something, that's why you are still alive. That's why we are still here. 
We are not here on the earth to grow. You know, it's good that we grow while we are here, but hey, we could grow much better if we just went to heaven. We're not here just to worship God, although that's a great purpose that we have. We can worship God much better in heaven. The, the only reason for us to be here is to be a witness. And that's why he's left us here. And if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for his desire to reach people for him, then when we accepted Christ, we would just go to heaven. But there's a job that we have to do, and that job is the job of the witness. Now, why in the world don't people do this? If this is what we're supposed to do, if Jesus, before he went to heaven, said, you guys, uh, you know, I am going to give you power, so go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, why don't we do it? Well, one reason is it's suggested by the Greek word for witness here. Um, the word originally just meant to say what you've seen. But the word, the Greek word is transliterated as the word martyr because people who told what they had seen in those days often were martyred. They had to suffer, give their life for the testimony of what they say they had seen. And so sometimes people don't like it when you tell them what you've seen. And they would rather have you shut up because what you are telling them about Jesus is a, it's a slap in the face to them for the way they're living their life. It's like saying to them, your life isn't working, but if you would change and turn to Jesus, it could be different. And so they love to pick our lives apart to find some chink in the armor so that then they can say, see, yours doesn't work any better than ours. So they get really excited. The best publicity is when one wacko who's a Christian that has 10 people in his church does something stupid or says something stupid. It's front page news because they want to discredit witnesses. They still would like us to suffer. And if you tell people about Jesus, there are ways in which you'll pay the price for that and you'll suffer. But know this, as a witness, you can't be defeated because just like with these guys, if you finish what it is that you're supposed to do, then great. But until that happens, he is protecting you because he desires for you to share who he is with people who desperately need to know him. If he would go to all this trouble during the tribulation period, after everybody has heard, it's all over the place, people are rejecting him, and yet he is still saying, I want witnesses, how much more today? Well, the door is wide open for people to easily come to Christ and to see their lives healed, to see their lives changed. And why they aren't is because of us, frankly. That's why Peter said, God isn't slack or slacking off concerning his promise. He's patient toward us because he isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I mean, God's waiting for us. The reason why he hasn't come back yet is partly because of us. We're not witnessing. I mean, it, maybe not everyone is a gifted evangelist. But, and there are people who are, and I praise God for those people. But everyone can just say, here's what God's done in my life. Everyone can see somebody and go, hey, I go to this church. Why don't you come with me to church? You ought to check it out. How hard is that? And yet, there are people who have never had anyone even invite them to come to church. 
but it's so important as witnesses that we say something. Invite them to the Harvest Crusade. Do, do something that puts them in a place. At our church, every Sunday, they'll hear how they can accept Jesus Christ. They'll hear the gospel. If you don't know how to explain it to them, just bring them here. I'll explain it to them. But see, in those days, these witnesses had a purpose. And in our day, we have a purpose as witnesses as well. And God will protect us. Now, again, just like with them, when they had finished their testimony, then they were allowed to be killed. Even in a microcosm that happens with us, sometimes you finished your testimony in one place and God moves you to another place. Sometimes when people get fired from their job, they're all bummed about it, when actually God is saying, you finished what I wanted you to do there. I have some new people I want you to share with. I have somebody else. Sometimes when you get sick and you find yourself in the hospital, God is saying, I have some, a new thing that I want to do, an opportunity for you to share your story, for you to share the truth of the gospel, to share your testimony. Often we grumble when God moves us when what he is saying is, I'm done with you there. I'm going to take you here. It might be a geographical move. It might be a, a professional move. It could be all sorts of things that happen. It's God's way of saying, I'm going to use you in a powerful way, and then I'll take you somewhere else. Because when you're finished there, you don't want to just stay there and just sit there and bask in the fruit of your labor. You need to keep moving because there's a story that needs to be told about the Son of God dying for the sins of the world. And again, the retirement plan is awesome too. Because when he's finally done with you, and you go, yeah, yeah they lay in the street for three and a half days with people celebrating their death. That's, not, that's really undignified. It's not exactly the way I wanted to be on TV. Um, but do you think that Moses and Elijah, if they are these two witnesses or whoever they are, do you think when they ascended into heaven, then the first thing they could think of when they got before the throne of God was, how embarrassing was that? What a Man, I tried to spew flames and it just didn't work anymore. And then there, and there was people giving each other presents. Did you catch that? That's, you know, it's humiliating. And I think I'll cry for a couple of years. No, man, they get into the presence of God, and they're like, this was so worth it. It was so cool. I'm so glad I died. I'm so glad that I finished the course and kept the faith, as Paul talked about. I've, I've run the race, finished the course, kept the faith, therefore laid up for me a crown of life. Not just for me only, but for everybody who loves his appearing. So the retirement program of being a witness is awesome. The importance of it is critical. It's the way that God wants to bring as many people as possible to salvation. But now we come to this last section, and he says, after their ministry was completed, now the seventh trumpet sounded. Now it's the time of the third woe. Now it's almost over. Now, it doesn't finish right here because there's a couple more parenthetical chapters describing some of the characters who are involved in all these events. But he sees this in verse 15. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
It's like, now it's over. Now he is going to come and be king. These other guys that thought they were king, they're going to be removed, and the true king is going to be sitting on the throne. And I love this line. It's my favorite line of one of my favorite songs, Handel's uh, Hallelujah Chorus from the, from the musical that he wrote, the cantata that he wrote, Handel's Messiah. This line, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Just an awesome truth. And by the way, the whole Hallelujah Chorus that Handel wrote is all words from uh, the book of Revelation. The other two lines are from over in Revelation chapter 19, and where in verse 6 he says, uh, Alleluia, for the Lord God Almighty or omnipotent reigns. And then over in verse 16, he had on his robe and his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And between those three verses, you have the Hallelujah Chorus. And there's this celebration in heaven. The 24 elders, the representatives of the church, I believe, who sat before God on their thrones, fell on their faces and worshiped God. This amazing worship service. And they said, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and you've reigned. Finally, the seventh trumpet sounds and you are mopping up and you are taking your rightful seat on your throne. Thank you, God. Thank you. That's, that's awesome. And then in verse 18, they say, the nations were angry. They're all bugged. And your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. And those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. He goes, they were mad. He's probably here referring to the second psalm, Psalm 2, that prophesies concerning this. It says, um, why do the heathen rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And he that sits in the heavens will laugh. He'll have them in derision. He'll smash them with a rod of iron. He'll crush them like a potter's vessel. And so he's going, hey, they're mad at you, but you're nailing them. Finally, it's about time because they're the ones that messed everything up. People who reject God are the reason why the world is so messed up. And so you're going to destroy those who destroy the earth. And then in that other part in there, he's going, it's about time that people that reject Jesus are judged. And it's a good time to reward people who have accepted Jesus, received his offer of salvation. Finally, Finally, it's going to happen. And so this time that on the earth is a, is a dark time, it's emptying out, it's flushing that which the world had become so that then, this is a bad metaphor, but then he could sit on his throne. <laughs> Sorry, but <laughs> get it? But um, <laughs> so he's going to reign and they're excited in heaven. They're like, yeah. This is awesome. This is what we've been waiting for. And then in verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant was seen in his temple. There was a temple in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant is in there. Um, it's, it may not be the same one that Indiana Jones stored at the Smithsonian, but um, this is the real one. It's in heaven. And there were lightnings and noises, thunderings and earthquake and great hail 
In other words, man, it's time for God to take over, to take his rightful seat on the throne. And it's because of the witness. It's because of people telling their stories of what God has done for them that finally the last potential convert, the last person who would ultimately make the choice to be rescued has been saved and now it's just a mop it up and set it up and his kingdom will be established. And so don't ever look on this time as being, oh, what a dark day. It's a great day. Because people who wouldn't get saved any other way are going to get saved when this kind of stuff happens. And so that we rejoice. And remember, the king has a right to sit on his throne. And the world won't be right until the prince of peace comes and rules and reigns in the universe. And so all of this is the process of that happening. And it's just great reading about these two witnesses who spend half of the tribulation period, most of it in the second half, the worst part, just telling what they saw, telling what they know, and giving people an opportunity. And, and then we'll all gather together for this great cantata and sing forever our witness, our testimony of what Jesus Christ did for us. Uh, finally, I, I have a little treat for you. I think you'll enjoy it. It gets me pumped up every time I see it. But a little video of what happened last uh, October when uh, some singers got together and dispersed themselves throughout the food court in a mall up in Canada. And in the middle of the food court began to sing the song that we saw the lyrics of here, um, the Hallelujah Chorus. And it's really... To me, it's just a beautiful thing. It moves me every time I see it. So um, watch this, and then we'll say a few things to wrap it up. I mean, some guys can throw fire out of their mouth. I can't even get a screen down. There we go. What's the matter? <laughs> You'll appreciate it even more when you have to wait for it. <laughs> this is third service we have all day, right? keep going like this to me back there. <laughs> Yesterday, my son Danny had to give his final project for his architecture program, and his computer froze in the middle of it, so I know how he feels. <laughs> there we go. That's not the start of it, but that's it. Here we go. We're so slick.
And that's what I call a witness. That's awesome. Let's all stand. If there's anybody here today who has never given their life to Jesus, um, this is the time. Jesus Christ died for you. He loves you. He just wants to be in fellowship with you. Everything that he's allowed to happen to you that's been negative is just so that he can put the pressure on you so that, that you would come to him and realize his love and respond to it. Don't have to wait until the times get worse, and they are going to get worse. The Bible makes that really clear. But you can receive him today. Your life can start over today. And I pray that if you haven't come into a relationship with him, today you'll decide to do that. There are people up here in the front, they would love to pray with you. They'll pray for you for any reason, but especially they would love to introduce you to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then you too can be a witness. You too can be someone who can just tell other people what God's doing in your life. And so I pray that if you haven't done that, that today you'll get the message and, and you'll do just that. For all the rest of us who know Jesus, this week, let's look for opportunities to be witnesses in just small ways. Whatever way God gives us, remember, this week you are on the earth to tell what has happened, what God has done for you. And so find ways of doing that, simple ways, just with kindness, however, but communicate that to others and make sure that you're fulfilling what this week is for, for all of us. May God give you a week of witnessing more and more of what God's doing for you so that you have more and more to share with others. God bless. The Lord bless thee, Lord bless thee. and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee and be gracious unto thee, the Lord lift up.